Hey humans, how's it going? Susan Ruth here. Thanks for listening to another episode of Hey Human Podcast. This is episode 269, and I had a conversation with Riaz Patel. He's a Pakistani-American immigrant, Muslim, gay man. But for a guy that you could hang a lot of labels on, he's made it his mission to help disperse labels and the mythology and bias of the black and white perspective. A really fascinating guy. He is not what you'd expect, of course, but that's the beauty of it, right? That's how we get rid of labels is you stop long enough to actually talk with someone and find out that they are so much more than any label you could ever put on them. He forged a seemingly unlikely friendship with Glenn Beck. He's been nominated for two Emmys. Uh, He's hyper-intelligent, really funny and warm and charming, and really absolutely enjoyed talking with him. We recorded this episode over Zoom. It's been a couple months now. It's taken a little while to get to to this one in the queue. So up the alley of Hey Human and the work he's doing is important work. And I think, you know, it takes all of us to help make this world a little bit smaller. And I I do believe that it's possible. And and I do, I believe we're heading in that direction. I'd like to think it's not too late. I know there are many uh, talking heads that want to convince us that it is too late, um, that the divides are there and that (laughs) we shall never cross them again. But I don't believe that. So. You can check out some of Riaz's work by going to his Four Chairs show on Facebook. And I'll put a link to that on the HeyHumanPodcast.com site as well. Uh, the usual stuff. Hey Human Podcast can be found on social media under Facebook and Instagram under Hey Human Podcast. My personal social media is Susan Ruthism, which can be found under Twitter and Facebook and Instagram. You can email me, Susan at HeyHumanPodcast.com, uh, of course. <laughs> uh, also on HeyHumanPodcast.com is the links page. And I have curated a bunch of information about every single one of my guests. And you can do a deep dive on everybody on that links page. And also you will find on the website is the store where you can get Hey Human merch. So if you've always wanted a Hey Human t-shirt or a pencil case or a hat or something, that is a great way to support the show and uh, look good doing it. (laughs) You can rate and review Hey Human on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. If you want to know more about me personally, go to SusanRuth.com. You can sign up on the mailing list there and I'll send out mailers every few months to tell you what I'm up to, some cool things I may have seen or read or whatnot, just a little hello. And uh, you can learn more about my artwork and music and all the other things I do in the world uh, under the SusanRuth.com. Also, if you're into music, you can go to iTunes or Spotify and find me there under Susan Ruth. And I've got some new music coming out. I'm really excited uh, to be recording some new stuff. I'll keep you in the loop for that. But that being said, I have a song that I wrote with an incredible artist named Hadley Canary. Her single drops Friday. It's called Possession of Pain. Really proud of the song. 
and definitely go check that out. She also is on all the places you would get music. Hadley Canary, H-A-D-L-E-Y-K-E-N-N-A-R-Y. The song Possession of Pain. She's phenomenal. She's so talented, and I had a blast writing this song with her. So, okay, that's about that. Uh, Shows I've been watching, Hacks, I love it. Uh, I watched, I think I mentioned this before, but in case I forgot, Inside, Bo Burnham, so great. Um, Mayor of Easttown, loved it. I've been uh, kind of binge-watching TV. Oh, and Loki, so good, I love it. I'm a big fan of the superhero shows, so I'm digging on Loki, I I love it. Plus, I mean, Tom Hiddleston, you can't go wrong there. Okay, uh, enough of all of that stuff. Thank you for listening. Be well, be kind to each other, uh, take care of each other, and uh, get into this. Thanks. Here we go. Riaz Patel, welcome to Hey Human. Thank you for being here. Uh, We have a mutual friend, Brandon, who was kind enough to introduce us. So yay, Brandon. Thank you. Brandon, thank you. (laughs) I I want to start. First of all, um, I think a lot of people at this point know who you are, but I, I always like to start these conversations with where you came from, like your, your humble beginnings, if you will. So I know you're an immigrant. Yes. Yes. Uh, so I was born in Karachi, Pakistan, and it was a very complicated time in that there was a ongoing war with India and Pakistan was going through very extreme nationalism and sort of the government was taking over businesses. My, my family's in healthcare. And so we ended up coming here very quickly and, because my father was educated in England, but not in America, um, they forced him to repeat his residency. So our first few years in America were my mom, my dad, my grandmother, my two sisters and myself in a motel room in Charleston, West Virginia for a couple of years. And so grew up mostly in rural Maryland and rural uh, West Virginia, which is where they sent a lot of immigrant doctors in the 70s. And so grew up there, came from hundreds of years of medicine, but knew I wanted to, I almost wanted to practice differently. Like I I wanted to tell stories that impacted people's psychology and transform them and change them the way a psychiatrist or a psychologist might. Um, And so that's why I went into entertainment and I produce and direct and I've done it for about 20 years. And all of my projects are what I call transformative. There has to be some profound transformation we're watching. There can be drama, there can be intensity, but there, we have to be going somewhere better than where we started. And so I'm a, I'm a producer director here in LA and uh, I have two kids, uh, which was incredibly hard to do to have children out of surrogacy. Um, but the life I live now didn't exist when I was a child. There was no two men marrying. There were definitely no two men having children. So I'm living something that didn't exist when I was a child, which blows my mind that I come home and I have two children and a husband and a dog and I have the domestic life that I mourned for 25 years. I would never, ever have because it didn't exist. And and here I am. So that's the universe can do amazing things that you can't even see. Since you grew up in a family that had a medical background, was there an understanding of the fact that you were gay? Did they get it? Because culturally I imagine not not so much. Not so much. No. And not only do I come from hundreds of years of medicine, but I am the last male of my family. I have two oh. sisters. I have all these female cousins. And so growing up, there were two things from an early, early age I knew. I'm talking about three, four, that I had to be a doctor and that I had to get married and have children 
neither of which seemed doable or anything I wanted to do. And so the gay thing was hidden, closeted, as most people my age are. I'm 47. Most people my age did not come up till after college in their mid-20s because it just wasn't safe. It wasn't really safe on college campuses. It wasn't accepted. Um, and so that was its own journey. And I think I not only got my parents to be okay with it, but I very clearly said to them at a point when I was okay with it in my late, late 20s, early 30s, that I think this is going to be a very interesting life with some version of a family. I would like you to be a part of it, but if you cannot accept this part, then you won't be, and it'll miss you. You'll miss the whole thing. And there was a couple of years where we didn't speak very much, my parents and I, and then slowly they came back. And my father not only came back, but when it wasn't just that I'm gay, and remember gay at my age meant you would get AIDS and die. That when I was coming out, when I was an adolescent, that is when people started dying of AIDS and no one knew why. And so not only was I this thing that was deeply shameful, but I thought it could kill me. And my family all thought, well, if he's gay, he'll die. And so it was a weird cloud that had nothing to do with sexuality, had to do with this moment in time with this plague. Here we are. Um, that really changed everyone's opinion of what being gay meant and what would happen. And so I think once my father realized that being gay wasn't this theoretical thing that would put me at risk, but then he met my future husband and said, oh, this is a wonderful man. That's when it clicked with him. And he was like, oh, I have no problem with the gay thing because it's not theoretical. It's literally this person. And I like this person that my husband, my, my son is with. And that's a huge part of, I, I feel your work is bringing people out of theoretical judgment and putting them into real world situation. I tell people the only way I could exist in this country, I'm a gay Muslim immigrant from one of the most feared countries in the world, Pakistan, until they create some fabulous gay bar in downtown Islamabad, I will never walk into a room where I'm majority. If I'm in the East hemisphere, I'm the Western one. If I'm in the gay bar, I'm the ethnic one. If I'm in mosque, I'm the gay one. I never ever feel the comfort of being the majority. And the only way I've ever been able to not only humanize myself, but really force equality was through conversation to say, and it always was, I'm not who you think I am. I'm not who you think I am based on what you saw in the news. I'm not who you think I am based on what just happened the other day. Um, hugely formative was the Iran hostage crisis in 1979. I was six years old in first grade and all these older students barricaded me into the milk freezer and said, why are your people holding our people hostage? And I was like, I'm not even from Iran. I'm the country next to it. It didn't matter. And so the only way I could ever humanize myself was through conversation. And so years ago, when, you know, four or five years ago, when people said, I'm unfriending this person, if you vote for Trump, unfriend me, if you vote liberal, unfriend me, I thought, well, that's the only way. The only way to humanize yourself is through conversation. And if you cut off access to that, you will have no understanding. And so my, my work of my shows and my work outside of my shows in speaking and the stuff I, I, the systems I've created of communication are to embrace that, that the only way forward is communication. You hate racism, it's gonna be communication that changes it. You hate systems of equality, it's gonna be, it's gonna be communication that changes that. I don't believe racism is stomped out through more and more and more regulation and punitive damages. I think it's through winning hearts and showing them, oh, that belief that you have is actually incorrect. Let me show you my humanity. And those conversations are so vital and they don't happen now because everyone walks into conversations and they're so fraught with danger. You could offend someone, you could upset someone, you could lose the friendship, you could lose your job. And so conversation to me is the thing I fight for 
because there's a way and there's a system that I've developed called Epic about how to have these conversations, specifically uncomfortable ones. I'm an expert in uncomfortable conversations because I've been having them my whole life. Honestly, it's the premise of this show that I do, Hey Mm. Human. And a lot of the people that I speak with on this program is I, I hear pushback from people saying, how can you talk to that person? Or how mm-hmm. can you, and there's always surprise, like, oh, you, you know, the, the listening part is what always surprised me. You don't just jump in and say, oh, that's wrong. I said, because it's not, it's not the point of it. And I, am, I imagine there are so many times in your life where you couldn't be heard. And for me too, in times in my life that I couldn't be heard. And I think that is that, that thing that sparks, you go one or two ways right? Uh, You will either become the person Mm. that never listens and will not hear, Mm. or you become the person. It's that, that saying of uh, you love the world the way that you were not loved. Mm, Yes. 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 And I think, you know, I think it is the great equalizer. I think everyone, you know, I've had a lot of conversations, like you've said, um, I have bridging conservative America with liberal America, um, with ethnic groups that would never sit down together, with cultural groups that would never, that, that actively do not want to sit down together. So many of my projects over the past six years is asking people to take a leap of faith and sit down with someone that they actively said to me, I don't want to sit down with. And I've said, well, let's try it a different way. And I think to me, it was very interesting. I was having a conversation with a Korean American friend of mine who's going through a real, obviously, we can see a real moment now and releasing a lot of pent up stuff about not, you know, Asians and South Asians. When we come to America, we, we don't make waves like you're the hard worker ones. You're quiet. You don't make waves. And so there's a lot coming up for her. And as we were unpacking that, I, I remember she was talking to this Greek counselor and this person and this diversity. And I was like, I totally want you and her name is Grace, I really want you to go through this process as grace, not as a collection of labels, because you are not even as much Korean as you are Grace. You are not even as much female as you are Grace, because you have lived your life and seen the world for thousands and thousands of days through your eyes, only your eyes. No one else, whatever labels they want to include you with, will ever understand the world your way. And so go through this weep if you need to, she was, it's a real cathartic moment, but rebuild yourself without the labels if you can, because that's the ideal. And when you have a podcast that says, hey, human, I'm like, that's exactly it. That's exactly it. I was in a, about six months ago, a year ago, I ended up being in a pool in some place in Palm Springs with a couple of people wearing MAGA hats. And that's never, ever really upset me because to a degree, I know what it is. I know it's a trigger. And so I sat to them, I'm like, hey, guys, can I ask you a question? And they were, they were so ready to be hated. And after five minutes, the older woman, tears coming down her face. And she said, I have never, and she was Armenian, she's about 50. She said, I've never in my old country or in Turkey or in Iran experienced the hatred I have experienced in the past year by wearing this hat. And I was like, that's, that's powerful stuff. And so we had this conversation very quickly where I got them on board with reparations for slavery within 10 minutes because it was a way of explaining it that they'd never heard. And they're like, oh, I get it. And I was like, that was 10 minutes. What could we do with someone's beliefs or thoughts if we openly welcomed the table and see how can I impact your way of thinking? People are not as entrenched as we believe them to be. The entrenchment comes from self-preservation. Right. The fisticuffs are the starting mm-hmm. point. And it's, it's, it's that willingness. Every, I say this all the time on the show, 
all we want is to be heard and to be seen. Even the darkest parts of ourselves are shadow places. When we push down our shadow and ignore our shadow, what happens? We we get rageful. You know, we shoot people, we get into fights, we cut people off on the freeway. Mm-hmm. That's your shadow saying, why won't you hear me? If you're not going to hear me, I'm going to be acting out. I'm going to make you hear me. I'm going to make yeah. you hear me. I, I, I a thousand percent agree. And in this moment of time of inclusion, of awareness, all of that is vital, important, incredibly, incredibly a part of the fabric of America. I'm just very label reticent. Because they don't honor every part of a person. They're a part. They're a way of describing it. Like, you know, I I see behind you a book that is blue. It also has red. It's got gold font. That has nothing to do with what the book is. That is literally me describing it in labels. And so Mm -hmm. I feel like we've lost a sense of humanity. Very, very, a story I'll unpack here, which I haven't actually told very many people, is my husband runs a nursing home. And so for a year, he has been gone fighting COVID. And eventually, when the numbers went up in LA, um, in end of December, early January, it came to a point where we knew we would get it as a family. And he had been vaccinated, but I I'm, I'm wasn't. And we have two small children that we knew would be fairly safe. As a family, we decided that he would have to do what he needed to do to keep the patients safe, 59 of them, and that he would generally be exposed to COVID because there's no way it was all over. Every patient had it, every patient, every staff member. The question was, would he isolate from the children? And I said, you know, these kids after a year, we have no family here. They have no friends. This is Christmas. They have no one. You cannot disappear for 10 days. I feel very medically that they will be safe because it does not impact children that young. But if I get COVID, I get it. Let's hope it's not not symptomatic. And if I get it, I will know I'll get it and have to look after the children, three and four on my own, because you have to take care of the facility. It was a deal we made. He did. Four patients died. Um, More would have. And I got COVID and I was, I was unfortunately very symptomatic and it was very bad and very painful and very dark. And for a couple of days, I wasn't sure if we made the right decision. Later, during that time, we decided, my husband and I, we would not tell anyone because everyone has been binging whatever news source for a year in isolation and cannot see humanity. They can only see the choices, their judgment, your judgment. And so we went through this experience entirely alone and it was a decision because we did not trust anyone, even the people we know not to have, well, you shouldn't have, and you should have. And so that happened a week and a half later when we were better, I researched one of my best friends. I left her a video saying, look, this is what's happened. I was still in crazy pain. We did the right thing. We looked after the patients so far. We're almost out of it. And then for the next two weeks, she never called. She sent these texts like from afar. And this is a friend of 25 years, close friend. And I was like, what is going on? If someone, if I told someone I almost died, wouldn't they reach out? No contact. Two and a half weeks later, I'm like, what is going on? And she's like, well, something in your message just felt very similar to things I've heard from right-wing anti-vaxxing literature. And I just felt very uncomfortable with it. And I was like, I'm so confused because we are vaxxers. We got the vaccine when we could. Like, what are you talking about? And eventually we had the conversation. I'm like, you see no humanity in me after 25 years that I might've been sick, that I might've died because you're politically slightly offended by something you think I thought I said, which I didn't say, I believe in vaccines. But in a time of that, in a time where I don't think I'll ever be so afraid for my life, hopefully, my one of my closest friends of 25 years completely abandoned me, did not see my humanity because she felt I said something that was insensitive to, uh, I don't even know. 
that is what conversation has become. It is literally, it is, it is tie, it is these landmines and they will blow up without you knowing. And then rather than having a conversation, which could be uncomfortable to get to the other side, people just disappear. Not only that, but I think there's people actively looking for something, whether it's taken out of context or something you said 15 years ago or whatever it is to be their springboard. What frustrates me is that this cancel culture that now is permeating our existence, it leaves no room for growth. You're canceled. That's it. And firstly, what would be a person's response to that? More hate, more Mm -hmm more venom, more, you know, more isolation. These are not healthy things to no, not a healthy place. If you came to me and said, this is problematic, let's figure out how to help you grow and understand. My God, that would be life-changing, but it doesn't serve that the zeitgeist of the moment of this, this moral superiority. superiority. I think, and again, I will say I have very direct conversations with people like you are, you know, not in groups, but one on one people on diversity committees at big that I'm on. And I will I will at some point be like, do you feel we're headed in the right direction and quietly looking over their shoulder? They'll be like, no, I'm afraid to say what I think. And these are the most Woke liberals are afraid to say what they think. Conservatives afraid to say what they think. Immigrants won't tell you what they think, who they voted for. It is that makes me sadder than anything, because I think we're entering a time of real isolation and bubbling where we will now for the next few years, as we reemerge into into the world, only bubble with people that we 100 percent trust. And and most of the time, those will be people that are exactly like us. I have a very good friend in Orange County and she's like, you can see it. The four Latino families, they're bubbled together. The three Jewish families bubbled together. The black families bubbled together. The white Trump bubbled together. None of the other children play together now because they're all in different bubbles. It is the worst thing when we're really trying to move towards diversity and inclusion. And it is dark, people's moral righteousness, how everyone becomes an expert of everything. I always tell people the dark side of social media is not that it gives you what you like to like. It's that it gives you what you like to hate. There are two sides of a coin. If I am believing in my cause and all that social media is giving to me are really beautiful stories about how great my cause is and how much I'm not going to walk around with rage. It is giving me less of that and more of this is what you hate about the other side. This is what the other side does wrong. All the outliers, all the crazies of the other side, each get personified and paraded in front of you until not only do you like what you agree with, but you really develop a taste of hate. That is the dark side of social media, that you click like for things you hate. That muscle being trained again and again and again and again is leads us to where we are. And it doesn't stop in social media. Of course, we've got Fox News, we've got CNN, we've got yes. the, two sides of a coin. Yes, yes, yeah. And they're they're you know they're showing you what they want you to see so that you rage a holic out. Yeah, you're getting that dopamine, and it feels good. It feels good to be mad, and that is just a fucked up place to be. When yes. we have gotten to the point where that's our cocaine. I 100% think there is an addiction to outrage. And I, I'm shocked at some people I know who have for five to six years been outraged and angry every day, which again is your own choice. What I really don't like 
is when those people turn on me and say, you're not outraged enough. And then I think, no, 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 you, I've had so many of my white friends who grew up in America lecture me on racism. And I will look at my own skin, look at them and say, I cannot believe you are telling me that I don't understand racism when I've literally dealt with it every day of my life. Why explain? But I, I, I refuse to be angry because I know it's ineffective. I spent decades of my life angry. I'm the gay Muslim. I mean, for a lot of my life, I was like, why am I so fucked? That there's like, I have all these female cousins. I have to be a doctor. I'm living in rural Maryland. There's nowhere to go. There's no identity or, or representation. I have, it was, I could not find a place where I was heard or felt. And now that I know what that means to someone, I'm never going to take that away from someone. I'm never, someone wants to talk and be heard, I will listen. And I've absolutely lost friends, lost close friends because of the conversations I've had. I haven't, I haven't changed my beliefs. I haven't been to who I am. But even giving them the time of day, the breath and the humanity has made me feel evil to people I know. Yeah. How does growing up and, you know, feeling like, feeling yourself, feeling like you were in these boxes that you don't want to be in. I just want to be who I am. Stop putting these labels on me till I look like a NASCAR driver. Mm. Did you have, did you have an awakening of saying, Oh God, I also have this, this mythology of what somebody from Pakistan, the person who has to be a doctor, a person within your, like your brain sort of having to readjust to what your perceptions were of everyone else too. I mean, because I imagine internalizing it also makes it go outward. Oh, to, to, well, I think in general, for me, I would say, Riaz, human, I will, I will always be angry at myself before I will ever be angry at someone else. I hold myself accountable to my behavior to such a degree that I'm my absolute worst enemy. I'm my absolute worst critic. No one's, no one's criticism of me could come close to the criticism, to the standards I hold for myself. And that comes from a lifetime of no one else's standards apply to me. I was living in Manhattan. I was a young film executive doing well, owning my apartment, having a fabulous life with friends until 9-11 happened 15 oh, blocks down the street. The yeah. next day, <clears throat> September 12th, 2001, I'm standing in line at St. Vincent's Hospital to donate blood because we didn't know what to do. We didn't know what injuries would happen. What can we do? And I could feel it so quickly. When you grew up a minority of a minority of a minority of a minority, you're a subset. Of, you, you scan rooms very quickly for hate. And I could feel the line turning. And I was with a lot of my friends who happened to be white. And I said, guys, something's going to happen. And they're like, what do you mean? Because they don't, they're not attuned to it. And someone screamed, we should kill your family. And someone's like, your family should be killed. And the line turned on me, my friends horrified, walked me out, got me home. And for the next few days, some of them would take turns walking me from place to place. In my head, in my heart, I'm still Riaz. I'm still living in my apartment that I paid for. But the enemy lines have shifted again, as they do throughout my life. And now I'm enemy number one. I do not rely on anything outside of myself to welcome me. If it happens, great. If it's well, fantastic. But you would have to be go through my life and be fairly delusional to lean into trusting large groups of people who like you today and don't like you tomorrow. So I don't believe in a culture of rage. I just don't. I think, I think it's dark. I think it eats. I think it's the thing that you, you swallow the poison and both of you die when you're, when you're mm -hmm. rageful. Um, and it's never been effective in my life. It's never been effective in changing the situation I was in, which I was completely powerless. I came to LA. I was the only ethnic assistant at the agency, the only one. 
And I was like, this is not a moment for me to talk about all my feelings. I just have to keep my head down and move ahead. And so I think it's funny. I was talking to someone. I actually believe this privilege in protesting constantly. There is privilege to be able to take off the time, to be so vocal, to be so, not everyone can do it. Not everyone can do it. Some people have to keep their head down because there's survival at stake. And so even aggressive, loud protesting is a privilege that not yeah. everyone has. There are many, many quiet people just quietly going about their lives as they've watched this whole moment of awakening racially that are just going about their lives because they don't have the privilege to be loud and in your face. Well, there's a radical wokeness that uh, marginalizes the fact that just maybe taking your kids and hugging them and saying, you're beautiful, no matter what the world is trying to tell you, that that's activism. Mm-hmm. And I, you know, you're a dad. Yeah. yeah. You know, I don't have children, but I understand like you just talking about the bubbles of families and those kids not being allowed. What a disservice. Personally, what is- to the. I will tell you one of the greatest achievements I have from 2020 is that my kids were two and three when they went in. One couldn't use the potty. You could barely walk. Like they're now going to be four and five. That these children have gone through an entire year of pandemic, of their lives being taken away from them, of their friends being taken away, of their family being taken away, all the rage on TV constantly, all the rage of, and they are content, cheerful, and joyous because I shielded them from it. Because I was like, this is not appropriate for three and a four, well, two and three. And so I, I was able to go through pandemic with my focus entirely on what energetically they were getting from me because my husband was gone for 365 days in a row. So it was just me. If I was rageful, if I was angry, if I was scared, if I was upset, that energy radiates off a parent, especially when the kids are two and three, and especially when there's no one else around. There's not a neighbor. There's not an aunt. There's not a cousin. It's just me. And so I'm very, very proud of my kids are so joyous and happy because that was, a, I had to be a wall to keep them from everyone's rage, anger, panic, you should, they, they are too young. And it was toxic to be around. And I, I know so many friends who mainlined the news for a year, and they are not happy people. They're not happy people. Oh, no, it's, it's, again, that addiction being fed is, is dangerous. If you, you look at a heroin addict who's been doing that for so long, and you know, they're exhausted and they're sad and they're angry at them. So, you know, there's like all that stuff. It's again, I feel like it's an addiction. It is. That- and you can't angry feelings can come up, honor them, unpack them. Absolutely. That's valid. But yeah. to live on them and to breathe on them and to force them on everyone else. Yeah. Is is pretty dark. Is pretty dark. Is really, it's so I'm oh, sorry. Go no, ahead. Go, go, go. Go. I was just saying that's why it's so important to read and and talk to uh, different things of different culture and different points of view. And um, you have the the project that you. Uh, I don't know if you're actively doing it now during the pandemic. I uh, but the four chairs. Mm, yes. Yes. Can we talk about that a little bit? Because sure. I think that that's such a powerful uh, tool to help not only for the people that are experiencing it, the, what you're doing, but also anyone watching it. I mean, all it takes is that little crack, right? To get in. Uh, and it's so, it's shockingly easy. So four chairs is again, because of the history we've discussed that I've always, always leaned on conversation to humanize myself when America was pulling apart and there's this divide. 
I crawled right down into the divide and I was like, okay, I know this space. I know this space where you don't fit in either side. And so what I did for about four years, I would bring these people together to talk about guns, talk about abortion, talk about all the things they didn't want to talk. And I would watch when it worked, when it didn't work, when they connected, why they connected. And I just did it again and again and again. And it came to me that the ideal number for a conversation is four. Two people have opposite opinions. If you just have two people, you go black and white, there's no gray. You add a third person because there's gray in all topics. And a fourth person's job is just to listen and to reflect. I don't think that's what she meant, or I don't think that's what happened. Or do you, So a fourth person has to sort of not steer the conversation, but reflect the truth of it. The system is called EPIC, and it stands for equalization, personalization, information gathering, and collaboration, the four steps. The most important thing I tell people is all conversations live and die by the E of epic, equalization. If I'm sitting down and you are whoever you are, you can be wearing your MAGA hat, you can be wearing whatever you are. If I do not see you as an equal human being, it'll never work. It'll never work. And I can see in rooms where I bring people together, I'm like, that you look at that. There's no equality of your humanity in this. So why even bother? We're wasting air. Go home. I've actually ended up, go home. I don't, I don't have the time. If you're walking into this, knowing and believing you are superior, what's the point of a conversation? Just go home and post. People do that. They just, they turn conversations into sequential posts. Like someone says something, the other person's not listening. They're waiting to speak. Then they post. Then the other person doesn't listen. They post. And so it's not a conversation. It's a sequential post. So equalization is the most important thing. Are you really willing to look at each other as human beings and honor the fact that you do not know what it has been like to be her and look at the world through her eyes for thousands and thousands and thousands. What she saw her parents struggle with, what she saw her grandparents struggle with, what were the real issues of her childhood, what were the things out of control for the family, that forms who she is and what her beliefs are. And so Epic is the framework and Four Chairs is the mode. And I would do this about all topics, especially in pandemic, but I, I do it. Some I tape, some I don't, some I do as podcast specials, some I do as trainings. The Epic system is now taught at schools and places of worship and corporations because people don't know how to talk. And so many times we would get to a point where these people who absolutely believe they were diametrically opposite realized they actually had nothing that was in disagreement. I did one between a 24, 25-year-old PhD student, African-American from USC, and a 60-something white professor from the University of Tennessee, and another professor, again, there were three of them. And after talking for 40 minutes, I remember saying, so I want to be clear here, that the only thing you, ma'am, and you, sir, disagree about is the actual invitation of a Nazi to campus. You, ma'am, believe that he should not be invited. You, sir, believe he could be invited, but no one should show up. And they said, yes. And I'm like, okay, so after now, almost 45 minutes to an hour, that is the only thing we have found that you guys disagree about. They were shocked. Walking into the conversation, they did not even know if they'd have enough to talk about, let alone saying, well, what do you want your students to feel in your classroom? This is what I want to feel. I do too. Well, what do you believe in teaching people? I believe in this. I do too. Everything was the same. Their perception going in was that they had nothing in common. The only thing they didn't have in common is whether you invite an actual Nazi to campus. Beyond that, everything they agreed in. But their perception of who the other was before they even started talking was so strong. Through the talking, through the system, they realized everything was the same. And that happens again and again and again. But I thought, but I thought, but you, no, you're, you're projecting on me what you think you saw again. I would go to people all through the 70s and 80s and say, I'm not who you think I am based on what you saw on the news. 
Same thing. I'm not who you think I am based on what shows up in your phone every five seconds. And Epic and Four Chairs is the way to navigate these conversations. And we did it on every polarizing topic and always find the connection. Do you think people tend to have an empathy problem when going in? Or do you think it's it's even simpler to just say that they've been told something so many times that they just believe that at that point? I think it goes, I think people need to be right. And I think being right is more important to people than being heard. And mm. that saddens me because mm. I have many friends, colleagues, in this moment of the past few years, the, the rage, the separation, the divide, that I don't believe wants to feel better and wants to be open-minded. Like I will tell people, and I did this again, thousands of conversations with people one-on-one over the past four or five years about the division in America and saying, it's not quite as extreme in certain ways. Are you? And within 15, 20 minutes, they would say, I feel so much better. And then the next thing was, I know you're right. I just don't want to do it. That was the moment. So many people, and I appreciated their honesty, they would say to them, I appreciate that because now we can get somewhere. They just don't. They like being angry. They like feeling superior. They really enjoy putting people in their place. And when I would shame people by holding the mirror and say, okay, now I've shown you a truth that could make you accept, embrace, and they would actively turn away from it. So fascinating. That's that. That's sad. And that's, and that's a lot of good people that I know who uh, relationships coming out of pandemic are not going to be the same going. It's just not. We've all been down such a rabbit hole. And it's hard to express to anyone who wasn't in the room when you were there, what every single day of the past year has been like. And I think that we're naturally feeling isolated. And if we naturally are inclined to disagree and feel like our experience is more valid than anyone else's, we have no hope to connect. Mm-hmm. Yikes. That's depressing. It's depressing. <laughs> but I also think that comes as a, a byproduct of how much media you ingest because the people yeah. that I do talk to, and I feel like they're becoming fewer and fewer. We talk completely openly and we sort of find each other. And so yeah. I'm finding new connections from people who are saying, I want to look at the world differently. I'm not buying this narrative hundred percent that's being sold to me. And I say to people, here's the one parameter. Just ask yourself, barometer. If you are 100% sure, you are 100% right 100% of the time, and the other side is 100% wrong 100% of the time, you need to watch The Social Dilemma, which is a documentary of how media algorithms work. If you are sure you are 100% right 100% of the time, and they are 100% wrong 100% of the time, you're in a curated bubble. You're in a curated bubble. So that's your first sign. If there's no no holes in anyone's arguments, there's no gray, you're, it's solid, you're in a bubble. You're in an echo chamber. Mm-hmm. And watch The Social Dilemma. You watch this, and these people who created social algorithms say, they ask them, where will this end up? And one of them looks at the camera and he says, Civil War II. He's like, there's no other way. It's going to end up in Civil War. Because we are, we are training people minute by minute, post by post, again, not just to like stuff, whatever, but to hate stuff. That's where the darkness comes. That's the power. Uh, you uh, made an unlikely, one might think, uh, mm-hmm. relationship with Glenn Beck, mm-hmm. and uh, which I, when uh, Brandon, our mutual friend, told me that, I thought, well, actually, that's 
that's awesome because you I wholeheartedly believe and I say this all the time I'm sure my listeners get so bored of me saying this but <laughs> you you cannot know who you are until you know who you're not and you cannot you know you can't mm-hmm. until you have mm-hmm. you have to have that opposite in order to know what you believe and what you think and if you deny yourself that firstly I don't think you'll grow secondly there's a world of ideas that you will be lost forever will be lost and 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 there's a world of people that you will never know. And yeah. Glenn came from a very specific time. Uh, I was in um, Orlando during the shooting in the Pulse nightclub. I happened yeah. to be attending a Pakistani wedding, and we were walking very close to where the nightclub was, wearing Pakistani attire the day after the wedding for a brunch. And I was watching people watch me and my family walking along, and I'm like, hell no. I have done this at the Iran hostage crisis. I did this in 9-11. I did this as a gay kid. I did this as a Pakistani kid. I've done this as a Muslim kid. I've done this as an immigrant. Like, I'm done. So Glenn and I, I reached out to Glenn, a conservative radio host and all, and I said, I would like to talk to you less because of who you are and more because I believe your audience will never have a non-aggressive conversation with someone like me. And so Glenn was a part of it and absolutely was a someone who really taught me things about America that I couldn't see because they never come to me on my algorithms. But the audience was what I really did it. And so I did about 25 shows, all of them, to Glenn's credit, I controlled the producing as an executive producer. He said, and he said to me, you do it. You teach me what I don't know. And so I would run the show. We would discuss these topics. I would be sitting as me saying, well, the liberal perspective on this, and actually I wouldn't go as angry. And this is something you may not understand. And we did that for all these shows. And I had, some had audiences, some were in the field, some were we did town halls. And the amount of people, usually white Christian conservatives would come to me and say, thank you, because no one will talk to us. No one will think we're anything other than racist and dumb and uneducated. And to a degree, and this is, again, we're talking rural Texas, they're like, we know we are. We know there are no resources for us here. So when People on the coast laugh at us and say, you're dumb, racist, and stupid. It's so hurtful because we know we're trapped to a degree by resources and opportunities. And so understanding that audience of millions that I never, ever spoke to because I produce projects in Hollywood. So my audience tends to be more liberal on the coast. That was what changed me. Being in their homes, people asking me questions about Islam. And my answering them very honestly and not being offended by them because I'm like, they really don't know because they're getting all they all their information from Fox and this, they don't know. And so when a person looks you in the eye, you can tell their intention. This wonderful man from the Jeep factory in Toledo, Ohio, he's on the painting floor, reached out to me and said, I will probably lose my job because I ask people, please, can we talk about this? Can we have these conversations? And he's like, I've been written up by HR multiple times. And I just, I honestly just want to talk. And we've spoken now. 20 times he's done a bunch of my four chairs. And I was like, this human being, this deplorable, as, <laughs> as he, would, he would refer to himself. He's like, I know I'm exactly what you guys hate. I'm, I'm a blue collar guy with a mullet who lives in a trailer, who doesn't have an education. I, I have guns. I'm exactly what you hate. And I was like, my friend, sir, I was exactly what everyone hated. And I will be again, depending on what happens in the world, the news. So you and I have that in common. And the humanity and the kindness and the shift in their thinking to say, I didn't know that. I'm open to that was magical. It was exactly what I love. And then I would come home and talk to friends in New York and LA and they would be 
hard lined. I cannot believe you even sit down with that person. I cannot believe you would ever talk to. And I'm looking them in the eyes and I'm like, one of us is actually helping dismantle racism heart by heart. The other is preaching to the converted every day. You've not, you've not converted one mind. You've been actually yelling for a year. You've not converted one mind. You've just yelled at people who already know. I'm actually going to the other side and trying to convert hearts and minds because I believe they're open. And it's just two different ways of doing the work. I do not negate theirs. Often mine is negated. Do you, have you found some of your thought processes changing toward and opening up to things that they believe? Because I know. Oh, yes. Yeah. Oh, okay. yes. Because again, Epic only works when you're really, the E is equalization. You cannot go into a conversation yeah. unless you believe I have as much to learn from you yes. as you have from me. If you do not believe that, if you believe walking in, I'm here to tell you the truth. I'm here to teach you stuff you don't know. I'm here to put you in your place. Why bother? Don't yeah. waste the oxygen. You're literally wasting oxygen. Just go home. So they completely called me on my judgment. Glenn did. His audience did. So I remember being in the control room about to walk on and something had happened. I don't remember what it was. And I was like, huh, that guy just couldn't, couldn't, um, couldn't handle it from an, from a, from, from a ethnic girl. So I don't remember how I said it, but it basically implied that this white guy had a reaction to what this woman said because he can't handle it coming from a minority. And this white guy also in the show turned to me. He's like, what if it had nothing to do with that? What if it just was that her tone upset him? And I looked at the clip again and I was like, that is an instance where I am wrong. You are right. Like if I'm watching that dynamic, it was about disrespect. It had nothing to do with anyone's skin color. And so they would call me on it when I would knee jerk being like, that's racist. That's racist. That's racist. And they're like, okay, explain what that means. Explain what we do with that term now. That's the, that was the fascinating thing. So many times someone would say, okay, I have been labeled by my, everyone I know is racist. Now what? Now what? Do I, do I just hide as a leper? Like if you actually point at someone and say you were racist, isn't the job to help them now become unracist? That was what amazing to me is once you're labeled, you're just persona non grata. You're, ex you're expelled, you're gone, you're canceled. And so many times the audience would catch me, even on my tone, I would say things about white people and someone would say, that's a big generalization. And I'm like, you know what? It really pisses me off when someone says something like all Muslims and here am I doing the exact same thing, all white people. And they called me on it and I took it and they were right because I also walked around with a slight condescension of you deplorables in the middle, you red states, you know, you, you're also dumb and racist and gosh, you're ruining America. And then I was like, oh, wow, when I'm actually in their homes and sitting at their dinner tables and chatting with their friends and at a bar having a beer, I'm like, oh, that's pretty horrible of me to have walked yeah. in with that judgment. So absolutely. Absolutely. Glenn specifically changed my thinking about a lot. And I will tell you, I changed Glenn's thinking about a lot. Not every day. I mean, he's a talk show host. So not every, he's going to say stuff that's provocative is what he does. But in terms of looking at the world differently, we were doing a documentary about child trafficking. Glenn single-handedly does so much work that is anti-trafficking, child rehabilitation, just quietly he does it. We were doing a documentary about it in Thailand and we were walking through a palace and he said, you know, my kids and I always loved the movie King and I. And I said, I love the movie. I love the songs, but it's a very sad movie for the East because it really seems like it's the last great moment of Thai civilization before it was colonized by the British and made civilized. And he was like, I never thought of it that way. And I'm like, yeah, it doesn't make me angry. I actually love all the songs. I know all the words, but it never was a happy movie for me. And he's like, 
never saw it that way. Totally got it. We would just call each other on these things in a way that said, oh, you may not know this. Here's something as opposed to ah, ah, you got it wrong. Oh, you got it wrong. That's the thing I can't stand. Yeah, I don't know when it became when it became not okay to to say uh, this is different and to be okay with the different the diversity is so powerful and I'm I don't understand where that had that moment. It feels like there was just a moment. One moment everybody was like, okay, we're different. There are issues here and there. I mean, clearly racism has always been a thing. Tribalism has always been a thing, but it felt like things were moving toward, uh, at least we're kind of, like you said, integrating families and and communities, of course, economics then fucks that up completely. And and the integration of communities then goes, you know, tits up, but uh, yeah, it's, it's so, it just seems like it came in so fast. Like, Somebody just lifted a floodgate, you know? The behavioral shift for me came like any muscle, you know, any Pavlovian response. The more I hit thumbs up for something I hate, the more I'm leaning in to a train of thought that cultivates the things I hate and brings them to the foreground of my mind to actively like the hatred. That is something that's never really happened. Let's say in the 70s or 80s, you watch the news for an hour. Most of it was pretty objective and, you know, but you might not like a story, but then you moved on. You didn't, it wasn't the white noise of your life that it's all there. It was 30 minutes of news and then you focused on your own damn life. Now you focus on everyone else's damn life all day, almost as a way of avoiding your own. And you just keep hitting. Yeah, I like to hate that. I like to hate that. I like to hate that. Ooh, I'm going to comment on that person because there's a pylon going on and I need to jump on and show her what she's doing. Oh, I should show him. That. I'm allowed from the safety and privacy and lack of vulnerability of my home and screen to share my darkest, most potent thoughts without any repercussions is, is unprecedented in human. How can I express rage from the comfort of my home without ever feeling the vulnerability of you seeing the rage in front of me? Yeah. The troll life, basically. Yeah. 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 So how do we get back? You have, we have conversation. I always say it's very simple. It's very Wizard of Oz. It's there the whole time. It's yeah. exactly, it is the humanity in you is a beating heart based on day-to-day experiences that only you will know. Yeah. Every, I always tell people, everything you need to know about the world happens when you're not talking. Listening is gone. Waiting to speak is the new norm. If you actually listen, empathically listen, again, epic. So the first step is equalization. The next is P, personalization. I'm not going to talk to you about the article I read on CNN, and then I read this study, and then I read this study. Personalization. What do you think about this issue? Because how has it affected you firsthand? I don't want to know. Well, my cousin's sister totally had it. Like, <laughs> I remember doing a round table about gun control and I realized it couldn't work because there were seven people around the table, but there were 7,000 opinions being presented like NRA and then this. And then Chris Cuomo said this. And then I was like, I cannot refute all these. Like there's no, there's no conversation. There's 7,000 voices talking and no one listening. Personalization. It is very much. It feels like people now they just put on this coat and then they put on this coat and then they put yeah. on this coat and none of it is anything that they themselves have really dove in and thought about. 
They're or really experienced up. firsthand. Again, yeah. I get lectured a lot about racism from my white college educated friends. I get lectured constantly about what I don't understand about racism. And, and But they're, they're talking. They're not waiting to speak. Personalization says, what is it that, tell me about your experience in this. Tell me what you saw, what you witnessed, what you felt. That's personalization. That's how you have a conversation. And then while you're doing that, the P of personalization, I'm an I, information gathering. My job is not to judge. Oh, I don't think that's right. I don't think she should have done that. I don't think, why did she do Information gathering. So what, what age was this? And your father worked how many jobs? Okay, I got that. What did your uncle do with it? Information gathering. How the hell am I going to know your truth unless I shut up and listen and ask you questions to gather the information? Not judge it, not respond to it. We can do that later. What is the actual truth? You share what you've seen with your eyes and I will receive it. Equalization, personalization and information gathering. Then you get to a point where you have some currency. You've spent some time together. You've learned about each other. 70% of what we say is not even what we say. It's, it's all the other gestures and all. Now you've got some, some history. You go to C, the last step, collaboration. Now let's talk about gun control. Now let's talk about real racial, racial injustice. But to start off a conversation with someone you don't know, discussing the thing you disagree about the most is the worst way to start a productive conversation. Epic gets to that at the end once you've got some history, once you've got some trust under your belt. Then you collaborate and you collaborate because again, your answer is not right. I keep telling people gun control, it's not actually going to be one policy or the other that's going to work. It's going to be some mix of both. When yeah, it comes to education reform, it's going to be some mix of both. It's not going to be one solution entirely or the other solution entirely. If we open to the collaboration, then we can fix the problems. How long are we talking about bending a knee? We still really rarely discuss the actual racial injustice with the police. We constantly talk about this bending a knee. That's not actually the issue. We've never right. actually talked about the issue because we, 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 we get busy and annoyed by all the surface stuff. So yeah, me, we turn it into a cosplay. It becomes its own. Yes. Yes. Yeah. And so to me, collaboration, the way of what do we do? How do we get out of it? Is that you, you, you equalize yourself with someone, you personalize your experience, you information gather theirs, and then you collaborate to find what you can do to fix the stuff that upsets yeah. all of us. I mean, poverty, I don't know a single conservative who's like, I'm okay with poverty. They just believe there's a different way of fixing it. And so their solutions mixed with ours are probably going to be, in fact, I did one radio show with Glenn Beck where I brought Glenn together with my most left socialist leaning friend from Seattle. And they had a conversation about a new microloan program that he launched. And he said in that, and he is the most left, 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 left. He said, turns out capitalism works as a motivation. And, and I literally, I brought them together and I'm like, this is the point. You are saying that your system divided in your left, 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 socialist, left, 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 Seattle utilizes principles that Glenn, you and your audience believe in. The solutions are gray. They're not black and white. I 100% agree. It's all in the gray. It's always all been in the gray. Always. But yeah, if, absolutely. If, if, if one side wants to win it all, all of the time, we will all lose all the time. All of the time. None of the yeah. solutions. will. I mean, look at where we are. We have been discussing inner city poverty since I was a child. And yet we still have it. There's actually not been much of a change, but 30 years have passed. Because we've just been talking around it. You're an evil, you're evil, you're evil, you're evil. 
And then rage sells. CNN is doing amazingly. Fox is doing amazingly. The politicians have amazing war chests. I, I, I was in D.C. and I had dinner with a very prominent lobbyist. And I said, I'm going to ask you a question on the record because I'm going to tell everyone your answer. Does an angrier population, A, make you more money? Sorry, does an angry population make you more money? A, yes. B, no. C, it's more complicated. And she was like, A, absolutely A. Every yeah. politician raises more money when they're angry. Every single network makes more money when people are angry. Anger sells. Anger creates revenue. So no one's incentivized to go a different way. We just and have we to all know this. We all but know we this. All, we all know it. It's, it's the elephant. Not only is it in the room, it's curled into your own pants. I mean, we all know. Yes. We, we are the elephant. <laughs> it's so totally. And it's this weird, like, does anyone else notice that the big problems don't get solved ever? But Ever. we spent, I, here's my thing. And I just, I put this out. I'm like, we had a global pandemic. I, a generation of small business old owners were wiped out. Their wealth wiped out. And we spent $6 billion on political ads when we're quarantined at home. So $6 billion was spent in one of the greatest humanitarian crises of our time to get us to vote the exact same way we wanted to vote. Because every single election, it's divided by... Florida chads or Wisconsin or Atlanta. It always comes down to that, even though we think, oh, we'll spend 12 billion and then we'll end up exactly where we are because the 12 billion is spent preaching to the choir. It does not convert one person. So it, it actually is a system of throwing money into a void that makes politicians, lobbyists, all lots of money, but never solves the yeah, problem. Yeah, exactly. It's the let them eat cake. Yeah, yeah. And even that, not so much. Even that, they were like, no, you have to be home quarantined, but we'll bombard you with $6 billion of the ads saying the exact same thing. My uh, roommate and I were talking about that at Echo Park, you know, they're going to be rehousing the unhomed, hopefully mm. at least uh, rehousing them with um, some tiny villages. And uh, he and I got to talking about it. And I said, you know, it's interesting. People, some people loathe the unhoused. It's, it's you know, disgusting and gross and how they live like that. And it's so, and I, and I think, well, they're terrified of that's them, right? Mm -hmm. We're all just scared of what we are truly. I'm, we're all how many, a couple steps away from that, especially oh, yeah. after this year. Oh, right? yeah. mm -hmm. And so when you're afraid of something, what do you do? You lash out at it. It's, you become the dog in the cage or the dog being, you're either the dog in the cage or the person trying to put the dog in the cage. You know I, what I mean? A hundred percent. And I think you, you either, and again, some days I'm better at this than others. There are absolutely days. Yesterday, I woke up with such rage. I'm just you know, looking after a two and a three-year-old. They're now three and four on your own with no help, with one parent gone fighting the front line for a year is crushing. I am burnt out. And I was working full-time. I'm working full-time while looking after them. They couldn't go to potty in the beginning of the decade. It was maddening. And so I was just so angry. And I'm like, I never like to linger in that space. Because I'm like, you make choices, Riaz, and look at the world with your anger and rage. That's exactly what you get back. You will choose to look at it with love and opportunity and hope. And that's exactly what you get back. And it, some days I'm better at than others. But you, I believe very much in, 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 in uh, manifestation. And I'm like, if you look at the world and you're so sure you can see all the darkness every single day, you'll see it. You'll see the darkness. If you want to look for racist behavior, you can find it every minute of every day. I'm not going to look 
for darkness every minute of every day. If I acknowledge it, yes, then I want to do something productive about it. I just don't want to yell about it. And so to me, it's an, it's a choice. It's a perspective thing. Do you want to look at things and really, to me, the difference is, and really help solve them. I'm, I'm very sensitive to people who just protest and letting their voices heard. And that's a step of change, but then don't roll up the sleeves to do the other hard work. That's the stuff that I'm like, if you, cause I'll tell people constantly who are angry at me for having conversations with conservatives, Glenn Beck. I'm like, you work on racism your way. I'm working on racism my way. I, mean, I, I have experienced it again, talking to my white college educated friends. I've experienced it a little bit more than you. So I'm going to go at it a productive way. That's my choice. I'm going to take this sum total of unbelievable hatred I've experienced over my life as a gay, as a Muslim, as an immigrant. By the way, haven't even brought up gay parent. That brings up a whole different, you know, when you are when you're in an airport and you see all the moms looking at your child who's having a meltdown because they're having a meltdown, and you can see everyone being like, if there was a woman in that dynamic, he wouldn't be acting out. Like there's so much judgment. Parenting is run by moms. And when they see gay parents, some love it, it's fabulous. Some you see the judgment in a way I'm like, oh, here I am again. Now I'm I'm completely out again in my life in a way that's now I'm being judged for my parenting. I I have I have had so much hate and anger of so many kinds that sometimes people were punching me and I didn't know what I'm like, so, excuse me, is it the gay thing that you're upset about or is it the Muslim thing? I had a neighbor two years ago refuse to speak to me, refuse to ask for separate trash cans from my apartment, my husband and my from her. And we're like, why does she want separate trash cans? And we thought, oh, she must hate Muslims. She must hate immigrants. She must think we're dirty. Nope, it was the gay thing. She thought we had AIDS. She assumed we had AIDS, and if she used the same trash can, she'd get AIDS too. So a whole year, I was like, God, she hates ethnic people. It wasn't even that. It was the, it was the gay thing. Sometimes I don't even know what it is about me that people hate. It's like presenting a, a, the sorting hat and just saying, yes. stick your hand in there. Whatever you pick out, you get to hate me for. Just let me know so I know what I'm refuting. So I, I've taken that on board in my life, done a hell of a lot of work on myself, and I choose to engage the world as productively as I can. I do not find at this point in my life, just being rageful and angry and pointing out the discrepancies in the darkness does enough. I need to actually roll up my sleeves and do the work. And that's my choice. But by doing the work, I've absolutely been dragged over the coals by friends, family. And that's hard because I'm like, now it's coming from my own side. And yeah. but, but again, I'll be walking in New York City on September 10th. And I'm all good. And September 11th happens and I'm public enemy number one. So it's not my first rodeo. But, and also being from Pakistan, which most people wouldn't, you know, most people have a, a, a small sense of geography. So you get pushed aside when now the Asian hate, even though you are part of that yeah. culture, people have no clue for the most no, part. No. So and, now and, you're, you're, yeah. And, and, and again, that's like, I don't need to be on every bandwagon, but there is a... <laughs> You're supposed to be hating me right now. What I, know. Do? <laughs> I know, it's like my moment to be... But it, but it is absolutely a choice. You cannot have seen the darkness and hatred. And I mean, overt, covert. I mean, I, I was at a panel and I said, I woke up every day for years in a Muslim house, in a Christian world, and went to Jewish schools. That was my life for, for about 11 years. I would literally wake up in a Muslim house in a Christian world and go to Jewish schools where I'd often be confused as a Hindu. And so I inherently see the connections because I'm like, oh, that's so similar. Whereas a friend of mine in sixth grade that I'm playing with, their grandparent is like, I don't want that Muslim kid in this house. It was always coming from somewhere, you know? And then I remember going 
I was 21, 22. I just come out to friends and four of them went to their parents, uh, one of the parents beach house. And I was not invited. I was so shocked. It was like, but we're all a group. And she goes, I'm so embarrassed. My mom doesn't want you to come because she thinks you have AIDS and you'll get it. And I'm like, oh, okay. Like there's never been a window where someone hasn't come at me for something and I don't know. And now it's my own friends to a degree. Now it's people I know. And that hurts, but it's not my Yeah, there's this, this understanding that somehow liberals can't be racist, which of course is ridiculous. Of course they can, just as much as liberals can own guns. I mean, <laughs> yeah, you know, yeah. and conservatives, they, they, it frustrates me that people say, oh, conservatives are stupid or people from the South are stupid or ignorant. Well, some are, but there's also ignorant people yeah. you know, on the coast is these, again, these labels, these labels, these labels, when you're a dad bringing up kids now, I mean, your kids are at an age where they're just, they're just coming into that, that time mm-hmm. where they're going to not, not only look at themselves, but look at others and go, what's the same Z's and differences, you know, and mm-hmm. things like that, just by the basis of like, you have a penis, I have a vagina, you know, that kind of stuff to, to more, you know, you have two dads, you have a mommy and a daddy, you have two mommies, you know, whatever, or you have a single parent. How do you feel as a parent, you will foster their understanding of the world? Funny you should ask, because this came up yesterday. My four-year-old daughter came home and after dinner, we were on the couch chatting and she said, daddy, who are you married to? And I said, I'm married to Papa. And she's like, no, no, you have to be married to a woman. Every man is married to a woman. And I'm like, she's four. Here we go. And and first thing was my heart just dropped. And I'm like, here we go again. Here we go again. Like it's going to happen. She's always going to have two dads. She and her brother look ethnically different. Like it's going to come up our whole lives. I, what I didn't have was a voice inside of me from a parent because they were new immigrants. They were dealing with their own thing. That was like, no one will ever know who you actually are and who we are. And that they will always guess. And you should, and you may. And I said this to her, people will say, oh, you should be, you should be more white. You should be less white. You should wear your hair longer. You should have two dads. You should have one dad. People are going to say this your whole life, Sarah. Only you and we know who we are. And so it's our job to tell them. And if they don't listen, then they're not listening. It's like saying to someone, is the sky blue? And they're like, no, it's green. If they're not going to listen, they're not going to listen. But a part of me was, we must have, and we've actually, our, our last name, my last name is Patel. My husband's last name is Andrews. So our kids are Andrews Patel. We have this code, APF, Andrews Patel family. And so I said to her, someone saying that you are daddy and your papa shouldn't be married is certainly not very APF. And I don't know what their family is like, but it's not very APF. And she was like, no, it's not APF at all, daddy. And that's all I can do is create a moral code within them that is resistant to what they will feel from everyone. Um, And even the well-meaning ones, the ones who are super like, oh, gay dads. And I can feel the novelty of us. And I'm like, you're not really respecting my humanity so much as you've got a new shiny plaything. Like it's, it's funny, even the really well-intentioned can be super condescending and super judgy and super labeling with the best of intentions. You're like, no, you've just put me in a box. You just think it's a prettier, more fabulous box, but you still put me in a box. You are APF. Our values are APF. And that's who we are. Yeah. Did you see the in and of itself on Hulu? Did you watch that? Yes. I loved it. I loved it so much. A bunch of people call me, a bunch of people call me and say, 
there's something this guy does that you do, which is when I'm sitting with someone, whether it's a Glenn Beck, whether it's Saudi Arabian royalty, whether it's a homeless person under a bridge, whether it's someone in their trailer, that I'm like, I see who you are. And then we have this unbelievable human to human connection where then they see themselves differently. And that's yeah. what I loved about it. Was, yeah, same. I mean, same. I felt that kinship too. Yes, so, yes, yes, yeah. yes. What you do, absolutely. Yes, is who are you, human? And you know, if you, if you, if you really believe you are that, and want that, and and it's filled with love in your heart, then that comes across. And I just thought at the end, wow, people should see it. I just, I was, I was so moved that. In all the labels, I know me too. In all the labels <laughs> of life, that again, to me, the most important thing. Oprah said this, I think, when she's received one of her thousands of awards. She said, everyone, the, the Sunni, the Shia, that everyone wants the same thing. That I see you, I hear you, and what you are saying matters to me. I don't have to agree with your policy of taxes. I don't have to agree with your policy on immigration. I don't know a conservative who's like, I hate immigrants. They just want some control, some some boundaries. And again, where those boundaries are, we can discuss, we can debate. But I've never known a conservative who's like, I don't like any foreign people. They, they, even in rural America, their towns and strip malls have a Vietnamese restaurant and an Indian restaurant and a Pakistani doctor and a Cambodian. They know the world. They're not as isolated as people think. But I just think for someone to say, I see you, I hear you, and what you feel matters to me. And again, I, this, this Armenian woman, 50s, the wailing of tears when she said, I, the things I have been spat on for wearing this hat. I have been spat on. I have been yelled at. I have been shoved. I have been physically pushed. And I'm like, that's the kind of stuff that you hear about in really dark societies. And here we are in America. And they do it with the blacks and they do it with the MAGA hats and they do it with the, like, it's, it's both sides. The masks. It cuts both. Yes. It cuts both ways. Yeah. The masks have become this new weird Mm. stomping ground as well. Yeah, it's, I look forward to the label just being human and that's it. <laughs> but then the aliens, which is what you're doing. Yeah, but then the aliens will come and they'll be like, whoa, hey, what <laughs> <laughs> there's enough, there's enough room for us all. You know, it's like, yeah. I will say there are so many people I know. And when I think about who they are, and I'm saying this for me, like, I know a lot of gay men who have only gay friends and they live in a gay area. And I'm like, that's great because that's how you see yourself. If you look at who you are, your labels, you know, gay is pretty high for you on the top. And that's why you make the choices you do. For me, weirdly, gay was never one, two or three. And so most of my friends happen to be straight. I've got some gay friends, but it's never been my whole world because the way I see myself, gay is like the fourth or fifth. Muslim is maybe like the third you know, intellectual human empath is probably first. And so it's how you see yourself and how you see others. If you look at yourself as I am this label, this label, this label, then you will look at everyone's labels. And then we all end up in boxes and we hope the boxes have the correct PC labels, but we're still in yeah. boxes. We're still in but boxes. It's, it's tricky too, because I interviewed uh, uh, Grand Dragon and the KKK for this mm-hmm. show. Mm-hmm. And uh, it was really intense and it was a fantastic conversation. And, you know, I got a lot of pushback from my friends who thought sure. I was insane. And one of the things I said was, that could be me. And they're like, that would never be you. I was like, no, it absolutely could be me. If I was raised in his family, 
Mm-hmm. If I if if somebody if I learned to hate something because that was how I learned my love language, mm-hmm. then that would be me. All it does is you take one person, stick them there. It's like this is the thing. It's you're not so far removed from your from your quote unquote monsters that you've yes. made in your head. Do you, do you ever listen to Byron Katie, Katie Byron, the work? Oh my God, you have to. She's she's an amazing woman, probably in her 60s maybe. Um, and she does this really like, she does what's known as the work. And she was talking a while ago, did a lot of sessions for people who are having problems sleeping about Trump being elected. And she's very, very gentle. And she said, um, this woman came and she's like, I feel like he's creating holocausts and this holocaust of fire and death and this. And Katie's so gentle. She's like, he isn't. You are. You just mentioned it. You just brought it up. And she said so nicely, loving. She goes, and she, the woman says, I cannot imagine someone voting that way. And Katie said, she's like, of course you can. If you lived their life the way they did, you'd vote that way too. Like, it's such a simple way to see it. I'm like, oh, you've lived day after day and seeing the world your way. You saw what your father went through, your mother went through. You saw the way kids played with you and didn't play with you. That's formed who you are. And so it's amazing to me when we talk to people and we judge them for the thing they did yesterday, but not the 20 years of friendship. And like, again, my friend, my own close friend, my my 25 years of friendship gone, my humanity gone. We grew up together in the industry. We've known each other since we were kids in New York gone. She thought I said something similar to right-wing anti-vaxxing literature which I didn't because I'm from a medical family and I believe in vaccines. So I don't even know what it was, but she thought she saw it and therefore could not empathize with me in my sickness and pain. That's pretty dark. Yeah. It's it's tricky. It's tricky. It's tricky to be human, but I do think it starts with, uh, I dare you to listen. I dare you to listen. I a hundred, you know, when you're saying you're doing the interview with the grand dragon, my first thought was, Oh God, the pushback you must've gotten. But I do believe, I do believe in having conversations that are uncomfortable and it's about intention. You know, if you are going into this and being like, I'm going to get a grand drag and then I'm going to like maximize the exposure and then I'm going to ride the like, then I think your intentions are off. But if you're like, I really just want to understand human to human, hey, human, the name of, I do not say anything wrong with it. I really don't. And by the way, I was that guy because 20 years ago, as much as everyone's woke now, they were not so woke about gays. Their parents were not so woke about gays. They were not so woke about Muslims. They were not so woke about Pakistanis. They were not so woke. This is all new. Congratulations, guys. That's wonderful. I remember a time where none of your parents wanted me in your houses. So I was that person that was the pariah. I was that person that no one wanted around. And thank God they would listen or talk or I could find a way to humanize myself so I could come into the house. This like, don't even talk to them. I was that person. And most people have been that person at some point. They just can't remember it or they don't, they don't, they've turned it into bitterness as opposed to love. Yeah. yeah. Or I'm sure when you fly, the color of your skin, the, your last name gives you the a bit of a flag. Of, the amount of times I have been asked for no reason to please stand over there in airport security with a guy with a machine gun taking my passport. I've had my passport taken from me for no reason. I was flying back from the Caribbean with my family. And they said, Riyaz Patel, come to the desk. And they're like, we need to take your passport. And I was like, I, I have to get into the country. And they're like, we think there's been some, some, um, something shady with it. And I'm like, you cannot take my passport mid-travel. I have to have my passport till I get to the destination. Nope. 
I just surrendered it. Got a call two months later. Why'd you give up your passport from, from same state department? And I was like, because the guy with a gun told me to, <laughs> you should never relinquish your passport. And I'm like, great. Thank Like there's no way to win. So yeah. The amount of times I have been asked to be in the zone and it's me and Somali immigrants and somebody like, and we're all sitting there like, I know why we're all here. Like there's not a lot of Asians in here. It's all the brown, brown adjacent black people. Like I know why we're all in the room all my life. But by the way, if it's done with kindness, I, I honestly, I don't necessarily see it as a problem. You know, I, I, I'm, I'm aware after 9-11 enough to think those terrorists did look like me. If they're going to do double checks, it's going to be on someone like me. And that's just going to be something I'm going to have to bear for a few months because everyone's panicked and scared and irrational. And so I did, you know, I didn't make it this furious, rageful moment because I got where it came from. And I said, if they do it with kindness and thoughtfulness, I'm good. The guards who were like, you stand over there and and got in my face. Oh, I I talked to superiors. I talked to like, I, I made a paper trail. But, but I, I get that you have to, that you get to a point where you're like, okay, I get this. There's these people look like me. And so you're pulling me aside. But I mean, look at how many white dudes with guns have gunned down countless people in this country. And you don't see white men being pulled aside. You know, I'm not anti-male. I'm not anti-white yeah, yeah. male. I'm just saying there are still these, these levels of what's considered acceptable racism. Totally. totally. but. I also, we live in a country, I live in a country where I'm not the majority. If I was living in Saudi Arabia, it would be very different. I'm living in a country where I'm not majority. As time goes, we integrate more and, and we become more of, of what is normal. But when I arrived in 1974, it was a very different world and a very different America, which I don't forget. So to me, it always changes, depends on what's happened. So sure. I really am reluctant to lean into anyone's thoughtful kindness will look after you because that will shift and has shifted over the course of my life. So I really believe there's a double standard, of course. I do think the way to really address that, for example, very quickly, I always tell people when I'm giving these lectures, you have people on the left who are like gun laws, gun laws, gun laws, gun laws, gun laws, but also black lives matter. Most of the time, the blacks men who are pulled over for what no reason or houses are searched for no reason are because of the gun laws that are created by the, and I'm always like, just connect the circle. The gun laws, the really, really, really specific ones are what's used as bait to pull them over for all the bad stuff that happens. The circle connects, they don't exist separately. You And that's what I'm always amazed by is if you step back, I'm like the best of intentions, if you're myopic, don't lead to the best of results. And you have to look at things holistically, which is why I'm always like, it's gray. It's not either or, it's gray. Yeah, the matrix is a real wackadoodle place. That is for sure. To mm-hmm. see where everything is connecting along the way. And uh, it, it just step out of it. I mean, that's the thing. Like you were saying over and over, the people that are just in it, they're in it. Yeah. And it's, it's, it's raising their hackles and they're ready to fight. They're, you know, and then if you take just even one, just one step back, and start seeing it. And then you take one more step back and you mm-hmm. start seeing it get bigger and bigger. And that's what you're talking about is like seeing how all the connections are made and seeing how we are all connected. I mean, I think, yes, we, we love, we live, we die. You know, we're born completely helpless. We are hungry. We need air. We want a roof over our heads. Like let's start out here mm-hmm. and see mm-hmm. what happens. 
If you, if you, if you change what you're looking for, it'll change what you see. If you look for connection, you will find it. If you look for division, you will find it. If you change what you are looking for, it'll change what you see. And to me, so many people I know in this moment, if I'm really honest, the ones I know personally, not just the, the people I don't, there has become this acceptable rage, which if you really scratch under the circus, surface is misdirected. Like the, the friend who cut me off is actually late 40s, single, has spent pandemic alone. It's been really brutal for her. She's got a lot of anger, a lot of unhappiness, a lot of isolation. I mean, to a, to a really traumatic degree, people who are single living alone for a year is just unnatural. PTSD, that, I mean, for sure. That, that's where it comes from. She's yeah. not really like you got COVID in May. Like, it's a misdirection, but it's an appropriate misdirection for her because it's moral righteousness. And so everyone's like, bravo, bravo. We'll like it. We'll like it. Bravo. And that's the dark. Because when you start really reinforcing negative, like you really call that person out. And then 72 people liked you calling that person out. That's the darkness. I keep saying the reinforcement, the Pavlovian reinforcement of liking things you hate is unprecedented in our time. In the 1800s, they did not read newspapers filled of things they hate. Now I've curated everything you hate even more than everything you love. Because if you hate it, it's a more active engagement. It makes you tune into the news. It makes you read the next article. It makes you watch the next documentary. If I get you angry and activated, I've got you. And that's- and it makes you spend the most money too. There's a lot of money to be made money. off of rage. So much money to be made off of rage, not just with the networks themselves, but with the people that are writing books about why you should be outraged. Or was, why the other day I was watching something and I was like, oh my God, now what we've just watched is someone commenting on the commentary that someone commented on about the thing that happened. We are four steps removed, and this was on CNN. We are four <laughs> steps removed from the actual quote. Then there was the reaction to the quote. Then someone reacted to the reaction to the quote. And now someone on primetime is analyzing the reaction to the reaction to the quote. So we're really down the rabbit hole. And it's now 24 hours a day of programming that way. Yeah. And then that fourth one's going to write a book about it and make millions mm-hmm. of dollars. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I, mean, I remember being at CNN and, and if this comes out, they might, uh, I might get canceled. But I was at CNN because I pitch shows. And I said, close the door. And I was like, let me show you this video that you ran two days ago. And this is right after Trump won, right after. So people are angry, safe spaces, crying. It's a meltdown. President Trump goes to Japan. He's at a koi pond. He's with the Japanese prime minister. Japanese prime minister uses chopsticks to drop some fish food. Trump does some fish food with chopsticks. And then Trump takes the whole thing and dumps it in. And the whole headline is Trump embarrasses America but I'm looking at the footage and I'm like, that's an unmotivated zoom in. Like not only is it unmotivated, but the quality of the footage is different. So I searched for the actual footage on AP Reuters and it's Japanese prime minister chopsticks, Trump chopsticks, Japanese prime minister dumps the food, Trump dumps the food. And so I'm in CNN and I'm like, you actually, not you personally, I'm talking to someone else, CNN actually doctored footage three weeks after the election when people are throwing themselves off buildings did we need more rage than what we already have? This is mainline CNN main stage weeks after the election. And it's unnecessary. There's plenty of foibles and fuck ups yes. along the way that we certainly don't need to be, you know, 
creating false falsities. There was no shortage, but I guess that day they didn't have something to mainline people's rage and they created it. And that I was and to the point, somebody will soundbite you saying that then, and they could stick it on Fox News and just say, see, this is what CNN does. And we never do that, which of course is a lie. They all do. Two sides of a coin. And their job is not to bring you their news. Their job is to make money for their shareholders. Their job is not to bring you well-balanced, reasoned news. In fact, no one is like, oh my God, you have to listen to this argument. It's so nuanced. They'll be like, right. you have to listen to this argument because the guy, you know, destroys the other side. No one's ever like, oh, my God, let's go viral with this subtlety. Tucker Carlson will, has said out loud, I'm not reporting the news. I'm reporting opinions. Yeah. And it's not my it's not my problem if you believe me, whether I'm telling the truth or not. I mean, that's that's, again, a loosey goosey quote. But basically, that's what he was saying. Yeah. It's a new world not- order where you're like, I'm technically on a news channel. But I don't have to tell you the news. Right. Or the truth. Or the truth. Yeah. I mean, again, both yeah. sides of it. My, my example was CNN. Oh, everyone yeah, does. Sure. Everyone does. Yeah, yeah. But sure, I mean, sure. it's part of the culture, the ongoing addiction to outrage. Yeah. So wild. Riaz, I would love to take all your time, but I am understanding that that would not be fair to the world. So let <laughs> <laughs> Let people know how to find you. What's the best way? Ah, um, Instagram is Riaz R. Patel, which is mostly just cute photos of my kids and my travel. My work is on riazpatel.producer on Facebook, um, also on YouTube. But I'm producing full time. It's more my on my side. But you'll see the four chairs. You'll see podcasts. You'll see short videos. All of me trying in this, in this divide to find the connection. You know, 1,000 conversations about one thing, which is how do we connect? So riazpatel.producer on Facebook, riazpatel on Instagram. Um, but I love I love the premise of this podcast. I love the humanity of it because if there's anything I think we need, regardless of who's in the White House, I don't really, it's humanity. Yeah, and to that, I, I don't think it does matter who's in the White House. You know, it really matters what we do. We, yes. the, we the people. And COVID can show you, like, they've all sat in D.C., regardless of party, arguing for one full year at full salary about getting us $1,400. While I have walked in L.A., you're in L.A., all these little mom and pop shops. So sad. All these restaurants obliterated, forced out of business, no help at all. The only one who helped them were, like, the neighborhoods or the neighbors. You you cannot rely on D.C. Yeah, we joke that we basically... Uh, shared the same hundred dollars amongst everyone trying to keep you know we just kept passing that hundred dollars around trying to keep whomever was needing it in the moment alive yeah yeah humanity i'm team humanity i'm team humanity i was i I, again i'm very very shirking of labels in general which is why i don't like people like what's your political i'm like liberal thinker but i'm absolutely an independent absolutely an independent same Same. yeah it's the most human way to go yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much. It's this been is a, a pleasure. pleasure. It's such a pleasure. I hope we meet soon, by the way. I do too. I look forward to it. And I, I want to meet your kids. I love, <laughs> you know, what this is what I love about children so much, especially that age, like five, six. Talk about, you could sit and listen to them, their ideas and their creativity and their yeah. their thoughts of the world. And everything is like, what's that? And what does this mean? And and. If we could get back to that space, yeah. we think of what we could accomplish. Yeah, it's it's very yeah. Wizard of Oz. It's it's we have it the whole time. Just click your heel three times and remember you're a human. 
Yeah, absolutely. Thank you. Have a wonderful afternoon. Thank you for listening, everybody. Bye. Bye. Rate and review Hey Human on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks. Bye.